You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. So I want to talk today first about times where you've known you've blown it. You ever had those? Oh man. Like where you're just kind of like, I've ruined everything. And if, you, if you've had one now, you're going to have another. Um, and if you think you're done with those, you're not. Right, just moments where you're just like, I do not know the way out. I do not know how to undo the damage that I have done. I do not know the way that I can fix this. I'm unsure, not even am I unsure, I do not think a way to fix it exists. Right? I think all of us at some point in time have gotten into a position of maybe hopelessness or despair because of our own doing. Right? It could be in our marriage and we see something and we're like, ah, uh, there's not recovery from this one. We do something and we think, hmm, man, I'm just unsure that I can get anything back or gain anything back from that. It could be in our church lives when I see about pastors who um, lose, in a sense, their ministry or their position because of some bonehead decisions that they have made. And you just go, is there, is there recovery? And some of you, even this morning, might be feeling like, hey, I've done a lot of things, a lot of things that I'm not proud of. Uh, beyond not proud of, that I'm embarrassed of, that I, in fact, really don't want anyone to know. I don't want a person to know about some of the things that I have done. We all have a tolerance, don't we? Like, like some of us are okay with, like, you know, 20% confession, and the super holy people are cool, like 25%, but there's always the other three-fourths that we never want anybody to know about, right? Like, so we often think that, like, we're riding high, like, in the high 90s because we're so holy, but really we're not, uh, because of the amount of ways and places that we have already today failed the Lord. That we have been inconsistent with who he is and we have not lived in keeping with his character. It could be through a thought, it could be through a behavior, it could be through our speech, it could just be through anything, just some strong even emotion that we feel or some action that we feel where we just go, I've blown it. Well, I love the Bible in part because it gives us language for those people for us. In fact, uh, the Psalms, and we don't have a lot of Psalms uh, sermons, uh, the Psalms are great. I have a hard time with them because uh, they're so emotive. And many of us uh, lack emotion. I mean, dudes, I've hung out with you. Like, you don't know how to feel. We don't know how to feel. We're kind of like, well, I just use logic. I'm like, well, the, the Psalms in particular don't use logic in the way that we often do it, right? It's like they, they, use, they use heart as their way to communicate to the Lord. Now we can say we all do that, I get it. But so often when you read, if you go through Psalms, you read Psalm 1 all the way to Psalm 150, not that you would ever do that, but you should, and you go for it. You will find a, just the gamut of emotions. And so often we're like, give me the Apostle Paul. I like Paul because he had really cool words and sentences and like he just says things, right? I just need statements like, God is like this, follow him in this way. Like we want those kind of strong teaching, like subject, verb, like that's all we want. Like live like this, lives the verb, sorry, like this. You do this, God is X. And while the Psalms do that, it's, it's positioned in poetry. It's positioned in prayer. It's positioned in ways that corporately communicate God's heart to people. 
uh, or God, uh, people, uh, God's heart. So they're following these psalms, and you read them, and sometimes you're like, I never talk like that. I never talk like that. I'm not even sure that I feel like that. Well, that's the great thing about the psalms is the Lord knows, and he provides for us ways to be angry through the Psalms. He provides for us ways to feel injustice. He provides for us ways uh, to be happy. He, in the Psalms, we're seeing kind of the full gamut of human experience expressed in prayer, expressed in worship, expressed in song. And while all the Psalms are tied some way to often an event, there becomes this time in the history of Israel where they become, in a sense, decoupled from that event and become part of that kind of corporate collection. And you think about even songwriting today, perhaps some song is written out of one songwriter's experience, and then after that experience, it kind of catches the larger consciousness of Christians, and we're like, that's kind of my song too. And you may not have ever walked through the moment or experienced the thing, but you go, I get that. I resonate with that. Well, that's what will be today in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, so right, we just finished the first third of the Psalms, 150, so we're now in Psalm 51, and these Psalms are not chronological, if, you ever, if you're unfamiliar with it, like they're not, they're not told chronologically, they unfold a little bit theologically, um, but they're broken up into different books, uh, different books of the Psalms, and so as you're reading, it might be like, now we're into book two or book three, so Psalm 51 and uh, Psalm 51, verse zero, if you're reading your Bible, like it, it, it doesn't have a verse, but there'll be this little superscription. And I think for us today, that's gonna help. We have this, it says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone, he being David, had gone into Bathsheba. So we read last week, not this past week, but the one before, we read it, the interaction uh, between David and Bathsheba. But if we're unfamiliar with that story, essentially David should be out to war and he's not. He's being a little bit lazy, staying back. And he sees somebody else's wife on a roof bathing. And he says to kind of his guards, he goes, I like what I see, bring her here. Um, and so they do. They bring her and she becomes pregnant, right? So I've skipped a lot of detail for the kids, but she becomes pregnant. And in that, David decides to try and cover it up. So David misuses his power to take advantage of somebody in the nation. And then, with her husband, he brings him back from fighting, right? So you can see this contrast between Uriah and between David. Uriah's doing what he is supposed to be doing out to battle. David calls him back, and he tries to get him. He's like, hey, now that you're back, why don't you spend the night with your wife? And he's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And essentially, he's trying to, he's trying to confuse paternity there. He's like, so, so you just stay with your wife. And he's like, no, 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 no. While my people are out at war, I am not going to pretend like that's not going on. And so David gets incensed, essentially. And he's like, well, if you're not going to do that, then I'm going to write a note. I'm going to write a note to the commander. I'm going to ask them to put you at the front lines and the support so that you die. So in two chapters, we have David taking advantage of Bathsheba. Then we have David's attempt at a cover-up. Like, whoever said the Bible's boring, right? You didn't read this. Now we have a cover-up, and we're trying to figure out what to do with that. Because if you've ever heard about King David, David's a man after God's own heart, right? Like, like he's a guy who loves God. And so we have the man after God's own heart murdering people 
and ruining their lives and taking advantage of a woman in, in his nation. So when we talk about no hope, how do you get out of that? How do you find your way through that? Nathan, the prophet, spoke up, told him a story. It was actually kind of the coolest indirect confrontation that I've ever seen. Because Nathan just tells the story. He doesn't lead with, like we like to do, he doesn't lead with, hey, you stink. He leads with a story. And he says, hey, let me tell you a story. Right? There's this one guy who had basically everything he ever wanted. And there's this one guy who had one lamb. And the guy who had everything took the one from the other for himself. And as he's hearing the story, David's kind of locked in. He's like, oh my gosh, what a terrible person. Like, he should be destroyed. And then Nathan just has his line, right? You're that man. That's you. And so he tells a story, locks David in, and then just kind of switches it and goes, I'm talking about you, man. You're the one who did this. We've seen Nathan before in the, uh, in the interaction between David and Nathan. I want to build God a house. He's like, I'm not going to build you a house. Uh, you know, I'm going to build you a house instead. You don't build me a house. So now Nathan gets to confront him on his deep sin. And tradition would tell us that then Psalm 51 comes out of that, comes out of that experience. So I just want to read Psalm 51 first as we go through it and then work through the ideas that exist within this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And in this passage we memorized last week, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me, God, from blood guiltiness. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Psalm 51. 
And we think back about the person who blew it, who has no hope, who has no direction, who is unsure of what to do. And Psalm 51 gives us significant language for that. It does not give us the full blueprint. It deals with the relationship with God, kind of that uh, vertical aspect that we need to get right. It does not deal fully with every aspect of how repentance works and how forgiveness works, because there's other things that come into play. But in regard to like that first offense, it walks us through it and it gives us such good news. So as we do this, because kind of the, the, the psalm bounces, even as you read it, it kind of bounces from idea to idea, right? So he's asking for mercy, and then he's talking about his sinfulness, and then he's asking for cleansing, and then he's talking about what he'll do, and then he talks about the sacrifices that he won't give because he's not ready to give them, but that God will eventually receive sacrifices. So it doesn't just follow that like this, okay, A, B, C, D, E, right? He's kind of embedding different ideas throughout Psalm 51 to develop it. So what I want to do is kind of walk through those ideas so we can realize what all is going on here in this psalm. I'm going to start with this one, that sin, not sins, the things that we do, but sin as kind of a ruling power and authority, sin is immersive. It is everywhere. It is the air that we breathe. It's the water that we drink. It is what we know, right? Like, like sin is a language that we speak. Sinfulness is a language that we speak. So often we have this kind of view that, that sins are things that we do. I do sins, but what you realize as you read Psalm 51 and as even you get into the New Testament, you look at like a Romans chapter six, that sin is a power. It's kind of everywhere. You can't escape it. And so what you'll see David do is David in this passage is gonna realize that he did sin significantly, but that that's just a symptom of a bigger problem, which is that he is sinful, right? That like sin is an identity statement for him. And so he looks at the issue, but the issue then pushes him to the root, which is, you have problems, bro, big ones. And it's not just about the actions. It's just about the condition of your heart. If you look just verses uh, three, four, and five, you will see that. He says this, I know my transgressions, right? The things I've done wrong. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he says, so that you'll be justified in your courage and blameless in your judgment means so you're right to do what you want. Because I've sinned against you, God. But then look what he says in verse five. You know what? I was brought forth in this. In sin did my mother conceive me. That sin is not a problem that just showed up as an adult. Sin is a problem that exists from the beginning every single person, even the people who are said to be after God's own heart. And have you ever traced that down? Like you think of a transgression, you just think of something you did wrong, and that kind of sends you into this reflection of other things that you've done, and then you're kind of like, you know what? I'm actually a mess. Like I'm a mess. I would love to think that I weren't. I would love to think that these are isolated incidents, but David is going, hey look, I know some of these things that I've done wrong, but pretty, quite honestly, I'm always realizing that I'm doing things wrong. Not only that, but I was born this way. And this kind of pushes on me because um, we have to really you know, kind of nuance our language because like, I look at my kids and go, you're good kids. And I feel like sometimes I'd be like, no, you're not really good, you're terrible. I'm like, I don't know if that really helps. Like we have this kind of developed theological lexicon that we know what we're saying in that instance, but they're just like, you think I'm terrible? 
So we have to be careful in how we're talking about this, especially as we're trying to go, well, everybody's terrible and you're all the worst. Like, let's be careful there when we realize we have to talk about in reference to God, we have to talk about in reference to who we are and in standing with him. That even people who don't know the Lord, like, I love. And I think in regards to earthly relationships might do good things. But David here is talking about that vertical dimension of his relationship with God. And he's just going, I'm a mess. I really do it all wrong. And in fact, even in, I think everybody here would probably get this idea. You know this is true, don't you? You know that if I scratch the surface of who you are too long or too hard, there's going to be some nasty things that show up. And so often we're just trying to live to kind of buffer ourselves against that. There's gonna be things that you wish you didn't love or you know you shouldn't love. There's gonna be things that you've done that you have never confessed, things that you are embarrassed about, things that you have never shared, things that people would never know, things that your spouse or your kids don't know for whatever reason. But if you scratch too hard, you go, oh man, I don't know what happened if that got out. That's the immersive nature of sin. It's everywhere. And I think so often we try to diminish sin by comparing ourselves to each other, right? Well, I'm, I'm better than them, nicer than them, a better neighbor than them, more generous than them. And so we do that as a way of making ourselves feel better in relationship to each other. But what David says there in verse four is he kicks it to God. And he says, against you, you only have I sinned, verse four, and done what is evil in your sight. And this is a hard one for me because clearly somebody's pregnant with someone else's kid, not their husband's, and someone's dead. So doesn't it seem like David has wronged a people? Doesn't it seem, I, I, wouldn't it be fair to say, David, I think you're going easy on yourself. And in fact, I would even think that, that, that uh, friends, family, spouses would use a verse like this to try and whitewash their sin in order to make themselves feel like, well, really, I don't care that I offended you. I really just offended God. So I'm good with God. You better be good with me. That's why I have to go. Psalm 51 is not, not just showing us this is the A, B, C, D, E, F, G of repentance, but it's showing us kind of the tip of the spear. The reason that you and I know what sin is is because we know who God is, right? Like, like, so David is looking at his transgression. Right? Otherwise, otherwise, what is and isn't permissible is defined by the people who are deciding it. That's what we try to do. Oh, well, you can have marriage look like this, or you can have family look like this, or you can have finances look like this. And, and so if we try to define it collectively, then it becomes much easier to go, I didn't do anything wrong. But the thing that we have as followers of Jesus is a standard, and that standard is God. The reason that David knows he did something wrong is not because Nathan said, hey, that was wrong, because you could, in kind of this kind of what gives society, say, no, I didn't. I mean, that's your opinion, right? That's your truth. You think I did something wrong, but I don't think I did anything wrong. The reason that David says this is wrong is because he knows who God is. This is not in keeping with your character, God. This is not in keeping with what you would want your people to be doing. This is not in keeping with what is good. Nothing about this is, but the reason he can say that is because he knows who God is. This is why in church life at Genesis, we always wanna be pointing back to the scriptures. 
because we have to go to the source. We have to go to the source. We have to go, God, what is good? What is bad? What is sin? How do I find forgiveness? And so I would say that in this, David is leading with the really, I've sinned because I have breached what God would have for me to do. If God did not have a standard, then David would not have a sin. We feel like he would have, but I mean, we have this morality that's kind of built into us as you know, Judeo-Christian America. So we go, well, that's wrong, but no. No, we can't, we can't say that's wrong if there isn't a standard by which people have agreed to live. The problem is that standard moves unless you have a constant, and that constant is God. So there isn't a time where God goes, that's all right. But there could be a time where we culturally would go, that's fine. And in fact, David in this, I would argue, is actually doing things that any king of that time would do. There's a woman, I want her. There's someone else, let's end them. He is actually operating in keeping with the world in this instance and not his Lord. And so when you start to just look around and compare, then you can start to do some pretty crazy things. In fact, in just a few weeks, I think after Mother's Day, we're gonna be doing the same thing with Solomon, where Solomon, wisest king ever, decides to live like the kings around him, and it essentially leads the whole nation astray because of it. Because he becomes a people pleaser. And so, when we harm others, what do we do? Because there has to be some place for that, right? Well, if you're familiar with our steps program, or even if you're just familiar with the 12 steps, when does getting right with others show up? Toward the end. Because you're doing a whole bunch of work to even figure out what is going on in you, what you believe, how you behave, what is false, what is true, and just, you're just spending the first chunk of time figuring out your own sinfulness, and then once you kind of have that, then you start to go to others, right? You start to pursue others and go, man, I, I really blew it. I really messed this thing up. But you have to go back to the source to realize that. And so I would say restoration, repentance, all of those things requires first a right understanding of God and our own sinfulness and how he has given us forgiveness, and then it flows from that to others, Right, so we need to know God's character and God's nature, and then we do that. That's why Jesus is giving us examples in Matthew 18 of how do you pursue one another when you've wronged them? Right, the, the scriptures as a whole speak to this, but generally one specific passage doesn't speak to all of it. <clears throat> and so what we see in David is the, what do you do when you realize you've blown it? What do you do when you realize you've blown it? And you go to the Lord, and you realize just how deep your sin is. Because we are... Like, at whatever degree of badness you think that you are left to your own self, I promise you you're worse. Like, and to any degree that you think I'm okay, I promise you you are overinflated in your view of who I am. Like, if you know me more or you know me better or anything else, all you're going to find out are worse things about me. All right, so, since immersive, we're really feeling good about ourselves so far, aren't we? Yeah, okay, so point one, we're all terrible. Great, great. Oh no, this is a psalm of hope. So I'm actually gonna go now back to, I wanted to start that out because sinfulness is what gets us to the psalm itself, realizing sinfulness. But now we're gonna go back to verses one and two because they're gonna make sense. Just in our way that our sin really is against God because God 
is the one that we have wronged because it is his standard that we have broken. We realize in verses one and two that God alone is the one who gives the mercy that we need. So we see this, David's plea. Have mercy on me, O God. And if you're a Bible circler, just circle according to your steadfast love. And he says it again. He's kind of building this little chiasm. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Have mercy on me according to your love, right? In keeping with your character. In the same way that I have sinned in realizing who, what your character is, please forgive me in keeping with who you are because I know you are forgiving. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Well, now we know why the plea in one and two is there is because verses three, four, and five, he's like, I'm pretty bad off right now. And so mercy is something that comes from God first. And in fact, our ability to even give mercy comes from God, created in God's image. Genesis 127, that was our first memory verse of the year. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. Genesis 127. That as we're created in God's image, even though we are marred, kind of messed up because of the fall, we still have this desire for mercy. We still have this desire to give mercy. It all comes from God, who is the one who is able to bring it. He says, wash and cleanse me, purge me, create, uh, create in me. So we can't do the work that is needed because we are in too deep. And that's the thing, we realize brokenness is we cannot go in realizing our own brokenness. Oh, you know, I got this. Like there's no ability to say I got this when it comes to the depths of our sinfulness. No one has it. So that's what we see. Have mercy on me, oh God. Like that's all you can do, which seems like a cop out, doesn't it, in our culture? We're like, no, you buck up, you do it right, you fix the problem, you get it together, you tell all your friends, you write a book, you go on a conference tour, you become famous. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because the more you realize just how bad off you are, the more you realize there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do about it. You just go, I'm done. I am done. So where do I go? Well, I go to the one that I've offended first and foremost, the Lord, and just go, have mercy. There is no I'll fix this. There is no what could I do to make it better, which is what you see your kids do when they do something wrong and they're about to go tell mom or dad. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. All right, like, how can I make it better so that you don't let them know that I've done something wrong? We can't do the work that we must do because we're in too deep. God gives mercy according to who he is, according to your love, according to who you are. And this is awesome. I mean, how would you feel if someone just came to you and said, listen, I know you have a reputation of being this kind of person, so can you please help me out? I know you have a reputation of being loving and gracious, and so I just need to talk to somebody who can be loving and gracious with me. I know that you give people the benefit of the doubt and that is what I need right now. I know that you will give people a hearing and that is what I need right now. I know that you are generous and that is what I need right now because I, I have no way, even when people do that to you, right? Isn't that kind? 
And so how much more kind and appropriate is it to go to the Lord and go, Lord, I know you are merciful and I know you are loving and I know you are good and I know you are forgiving. So just in keeping with that, could you please do it? Because that's what I need. That's what I need. It is awesome. It is awesome, and I'm, I'm gonna say it this way and, and, and don't take it the wrong way, but essentially to throw back to God what he has given to us in his word. Like, you've revealed yourself at this, right? So prove it. I think that is a totally fine prayer to pray. You've said you're forgiving, so forgive. You've said you're loving, so love. You've said you're generous, so be generous. You've said you're kind, so show us kindness. Make us see your kindness. You've said you want people who don't know you to to, to know you, so save my family, my friends, my coworkers, because this is in keeping with the kind of God that you are. That's what he does. That should be what we do all the time, is to go back to God and go, this is who you are. This is the kind of God you are. In the book of James, right, Jesus' half-brother, James gets mad at them for their prayers because he goes, you pray with the wrong intentions that you might spend what you get on your own pleasures. You go, oh, yeah, that's, that's not in keeping, right? That's in keep it, praying in keeping with who I am. That's not praying in keeping with who God is. God alone gives mercy and it's in keeping with who he is. But then I want to move to this idea of restoration. That restoration must be total, must be complete. And I just want to reference the verses that come throughout this that don't just talk about like, hey, could you make it better between me and other people? Or hey, whatever. Like he's talking about the immersive restoration that he needs because the immersive nature of sin. So internally, we cannot fix the internal problems. We talked about this a few, maybe weeks or months ago. Like, how do you clean your heart? How do you clean your soul? How do you clean parts of you that you know that soap and water do not get? And listen to the statements that David makes. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Where was hyssop used? If you don't remember, it's at the Passover. Putting blood on the doorposts, right? Purge me with hyssop that I may be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That image has shown up before. Create in me a clean heart. So David in these statements is asking for an internal cleaning, an internal rightness, not just external, right? That God is not just concerned about you looking shiny. He goes after the heart. He wants your heart to be pure. Because all of us can operate in kind of whitewashed ways. In fact, some of us have reputations of churches where that's what we do, right? They go, man, everyone just acts like they have it together, but I know they don't. I see what they post on Facebook. They don't have it together. But then they show up face to face, they're like, oh, hey, what's up, brother? What's up? Oh, yeah, God's so good. And you're just like, no, I know your marriage is falling apart. Why are you faking it? Because that's what we know how to do. Fake is what we know. And God, God cleans our heart. He cleans our heart because of the work of his son Jesus. And the new covenant that is brought, where, where you read in Ezekiel, it'll be one of our memory verses coming up, that uh, God will take our heart of stone out and he will give us a heart of flesh, one that feels, one that beats, one that's real, one that's new. That that's the work of God. God does not just go externally, look like this, act like this, run like this, talk like this, be like this, 
But God transforms your person, the whole of you, not just the outside of you, but he changes your heart. He also, though, has language that he gives because he wants to be right with God. He has ways that he talks about that. So I want to be restored internally. I want to be restored with God. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 11, do not banish me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Well, who is the king before David whom God removed his presence from? Saul. And so you think that David doesn't have that in mind? God, please do not do in me what you did in Saul because of his disobedience. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit doesn't operate in the same way that we think about it now, where it indwells those who have put their faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit has not been given on the day of Pentecost. And so the Holy Spirit and God's presence with a guiding presence often shows up. It shows up in the judges, uh, the Spirit of God, even in creation. But the Spirit operates in a New Testament way differently because it indwells and does not be believers. But David's looking at what he's seeing and going, I don't want your presence to leave me like it left Saul. Hide your face Be unaware of my sin. Cleanse me, restore me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Salvation belongs to our God. And I love that he doesn't just say, and I've heard this said before, uh, he doesn't just say, give me my salvation back, right? Give me my salvation back, God. Some of us operate like that, like, hey, if we're doing really good, God loves us and we're saved, and we're doing really bad, God doesn't love us and we're not saved. Look at David's words in Psalm 51. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Not restore your salvation to me. And that's an important distinction for us because the distinction is, God, could I please feel joy as one of your children? Restore that to me, because in my brokenness, I have lost it. Sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. That we're looking at this kind of restoration that's like, I need to be internally cleaned, I need to be right with you, I need to be right in this world, I need to walk right, rightly. Total restoration. And then, and then, as we have 10, 11, 12, 13, then we realize that service and serving God follows restoration. This is important for us. I want you to hear the difference. I've done something wrong. Okay, go make it right. That's true. That's true. But sometimes, and I run into this with counseling sometimes, when I'm dealing with like a, a difficult marriage or maybe there's substance abuse or something like that, is that you have to be really careful because if you give somebody steps to follow and they follow them and it doesn't work, and they go, I did the things that you said, am I right now? Can I be done? And you're like, it's not about the steps, it's about the heart. But you might miss it. And so David wants to declare the goodness of God. He wants to teach others about God. He wants to be there and serve and declare and to praise. But it comes in the psalm on the tail end of these requests for cleansing and restoration and forgiveness. And so you look at verse 10. Or, I'm sorry, verse 13. Then I will teach the rebellious your way. Sinners will return to you. Verse 14, deliver me from 
about guiltiness, O God, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. This follows restoration. So often we try to jump to, how could I fix it? The first way you fix it is by going to the Lord and seeking him and receiving his mercy. But then here's the other part for those of us who have, are like the super guilty conscience Christians of which I'm in that camp. You will sideline yourself after receiving God's forgiveness for weeks, months, and years because you're waiting to hit some kind of external level of holiness before you feel like God is good with you. Now there are times, and I've had friends where I'm like, hey listen, you're gonna, we need you to take a time out from the type of ministry that you do for weeks or months because there's just some business that you have to do in your own heart. There's some business that you might need to do in your marriage. There's just some things that you have to do in your life. I think that is totally appropriate. Is that as you're working on walking rightly with God, sometimes you need to tap out of other areas of ministry and other areas of service in order to actually give attention to the things in your life that are not quite squared up and in keeping with who God is. But the whole goal of restoration is to move us in right step with God and then being able to talk about him again with others. And so, so we might have to be sidelined or using an you know, athletic illustration in, like, in the trainer's room dealing with our stuff for a while, but the whole goal then is to get us back into ministering and declaring and praising and telling and teaching people about how good God is. And not just like, hey, I'm just gonna tell your church all the good things, but I will teach the rebellious your ways. We'll often see this in people who have some kind of significant moment in life where they fell and they fell hard is that then they want to keep from doing the same thing. They want to keep people from doing the same thing. They say, let me, let me tell you about why you shouldn't have an affair. Let me tell you that. Even, even the ministry that we do from time to time, FPU, we have Dave Rams and he's like, oh yeah, he's super energetic with his Tennessee drawl and all that stuff. And he's like, yeah, you know. Um, but as he tells a story, he's like, I got into tons of debt. I went bankrupt. It was ridiculous and stressful and crushed me. I don't want you to be in that situation. And so, so often our desire to teach and declare comes out of an experience of brokenness where we're like, please God, if you could use me to keep one other person, two other people from doing the same things that I have done, it would have been in a sense worth it. I hate the damage that it has caused. I hate the pain that is there. But if I could keep others from doing the same thing, I would. After restoration. And sometimes that period of time takes longer than you want it to. Takes longer than you want it to. So I would just encourage you, you're in Genesis right now, but if you ever go to another church, if your uh, leadership is working with you or working through some issue with you, and they're like, could we just give it some time? and some counseling and some, some time walking this out before we just kind of dive right back into leadership. Like, that, that's an okay thing. That's an okay thing, because sometimes we do need to linger on our brokenness and kind of think rightly about who God is before we dive right back in. But we do want to dive in, right? We do want to then, after that, serve joyfully and gladly and praise. And the cool thing about Jesus is this. This is the awesome thing about seeking the forgiveness of God, is he holds none of it back. He holds none of it back. He's not like, I'm gonna give you 60% forgiveness now. Go to church for a month, I'm gonna give you another 20% forgiveness. Go to church for two more months, I'm gonna give you another 20% forgiveness, and then you're good. 
You are forgiven fully by God at the moment of confession. Fully. And then there's often work that has to be done on our end about what that even means. Well, how does that work? How do I live as a forgiven person? How do I deal with the issues that are going on in my own life and in my own heart? How do I make these relationships right? How do I pursue my wife or my husband or my friends or my church family? How do I pursue them from an appropriate posture of humility and brokenness? That's often some significant work that has to be done. But the forgiveness aspect from our God, boom. You don't work for it. You're given it. So I just have a question for you. One question as we finish this out. Whether or not you've been a church person forever or this is like a new thing for you. Where is mercy needed? Where? There is always a place. There's always a place. No one in this room should say, actually, I feel like I'm pretty good. Because if you do that, Psalm 51, and even for you, like, like, you, you, like Psalm 51 comes from a place of brokenness. And so the question of where is mercy needed goes like, where do you know you have not measured up? Where do you know you have blown it? Where do you know you have harmed yourself, you have harmed others, in your heart, in your actions, in your speech? Where do you know that's happened? Step one is to go to God. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And from there, we work out how the rest happens. We work out how the rest happens. And your community groups and your community group leaders are helping you kind of understand how do you live forgiven? How do you walk through, sometimes it's counseling. How do we actually process what's gone on and process how we've been hurt or how we've hurt others? Those are all parts of the whole picture, but the first thing is just to go, God, give me mercy according to who you are, according to your love. Cleanse me, wash me. And the beautiful thing and the faith thing for us is to believe and know that as quickly as forgiveness is asked of the Lord, it is given. Uh, John, one of the uh, apostles, he says it like this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of unrighteousness. After 30 days. No, he he didn't say that. There's no ad. There's no like footnote sometimes. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because that's our God. He can do what we can't. Every time, without fail. Because it's according to him and not us. So pray with me. Lord, as we even hear and read this psalm, have mercy on me, wash me, my sin is ever before me, purge me, cleanse me, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities, don't banish me from your presence, restore the joy of your salvation to me, we pray these things, God, knowing you're gracious, you are merciful, you are loving, you are good. Father, for anyone in this room who is struggling with the idea of your love in Christ for them, might you reveal it even now.
And might we all be a people who are quick to confess and seek mercy from you over anything else and then walk out the path of forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation as people who have been transformed by your grace. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.